Welcome to Hope Denver. Welcome if, if you're listening in online as well. Uh, I know everyone here, but if you don't know me online, my name's Tyler, one of the pastors here, excited to continue on in our series. A um, couple of housekeeping items that you should just know about if you haven't been around lately. Um, we believe in community here at Hope Denver. Hope groups are still happening. Uh, also be on the lookout for a larger announcement into September as kind of new groups start and we connect back at Wasser Chapel again. Um, also, if Hope Denver is your home, you can continue to give online at hopedenver.com give. Uh, we also have a receptacle over there, but thank you so much for your continued generosity. Um, well, tonight we are continuing on in our series titled Overcoming the Chaos. Uh, we're talking about this crazy world that we all live in right now. And I'm sure, like, like myself, your life has been somewhat flipped upside down over the last few months uh, with a pandemic and economic downturn and cultural unrest. Uh, I mentioned this actually in a past sermon, but there was an op-ed in the New York Times titled, America is facing five epic crises all at once. Not three, not four, but five. And uh, this was before the Broncos starting right tackle opted out for the season. So we're at six. Um, but all joking aside, this has been a really critical time for so many people in our world. Uh, I'm not sure the world has collectively suffered together like this with so much chaos since perhaps World War II. And we've had our own struggles as Americans as well. Earlier this summer, a six-year-old girl named Gianna from Minneapolis lost a father tragically. She's been quoted since saying, I really just miss him. And he was the one that played with me all day long. Gianna's mother couldn't find the words to describe what happened to her father, George Floyd, and simply said, he died because he couldn't breathe. And this, among other murders of black Americans throughout this year, has led to a tidal wave of unrest and protest and calls for justice in our country as things have really further descended into chaos. And while you might be feeling a little uneasy right now, like where are we going, I, as we talk through a really complex issue tonight, I want to start with a couple of disclosure items. The first is, this is a humble sermon. I'm not an expert on this. I've walked through my own repentance and conversations and education on the topic of race reconciliation in the last few months. Obviously, I'm a white American man. I've never experienced systemic racism firsthand. This is not an all-encompassing message. I'm not going to talk about every single subtopic that we can talk about or say it all perfectly, but I fully believe that the church has a unique and an opportunistic place in these times to bring healing, reconciliation, and a path forward. And while this is a serious issue, the goal tonight is not to add on to guilt and shame and exhaustion and feeling like we're not doing enough. But again, I believe the family of God is a people set apart, restored by the gospel to partner with Jesus in ushering his kingdom in here and now. And this should give us hope and practical steps forward. Sound good? All right, here we go. Uh, tonight's message is entitled, No Justice, No Peace, Overcoming for Reconciliation. And tonight I want to start to look at the question of how does the gospel uniquely position the family of God to bring reconciliation in our world? Drilling into that question, what does biblical justice look like? How can the church be a catalyst for peace? How can the church bring racial reconciliation and healing when it is so needed? My hope tonight is to provide really some handholds for us as we climb some really complex and difficult terrain. That said, if you have a Bible, that's where we're going to start. Uh, you can open up on your phone, or if you brought one, that's great too. We're going to be reading 
four verses out of the book of Galatians. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11 through 14. And as we read this, we're going to find a testy and a fiery Paul writing to some early churches in this kind of exciting little document. Um, So it's going to be fun. This is what he says, Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles, because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we dive into somewhat polarizing, extremely difficult and complex topics like this, things that have open wounds, open yet in our society today. It's, it's our prayer, God, that, that you would speak, nothing else, that your word would speak to us, teach us, instruct us, encourage us, and, and do what you'd like to do tonight, God. It's my prayer, Lord, that, that you would speak, and with that we say we are open and ready to hear from you. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So, brief contextual overview, because we're not spending a lot of times in the book of Galatians. Um, Again, our author is Paul. And fun fact, this is very likely the very first Christian writing in the New Testament, even though the Bible's not ordered that way. And again, Paul is writing from a deep place of passion and frustration that he had helped plant these early churches. And it's important to know for us that Christianity really began as a Jewish messianic movement in Jerusalem. But so much of Paul's efforts and the story of the New Testament was that the story wasn't just for Jews, it was for all of humanity. And by the time Paul was a missionary, there were likely as many Gentiles or non-Jewish people as there were Jews in the Jesus movement, which started this huge debate in the book of Acts. Because historically, the people of God were comprised of one ethnic group being Israel, who were set apart by practices commanded in the Torah, circumcision, for example, that's a great topic to start a sermon on, and sorry, parents, um, became kind of this badge of membership for the Jewish people. There were other things they followed along in as well. And there were many Jewish Jesus followers, that's a tongue twister, um, convinced that all Jesus followers had to continue to adhere to these principles. And missionaries sort of out of that line of thinking came to churches here in Galatia after Paul and started demanding these things of the Galatian churches, which undermined Paul, led to his anger. So Paul was brokenhearted as so many of his people began to listen to this, and this letter is the result. So knowing that, let's, uh, let's start in verse 11. Again, it says, When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Cephas is Peter, one of the 12 disciples, really the first leader of the early church in Jerusalem. This was a church community greatly influenced by by Jewish heritage and practices back in Jerusalem. And as he came to Antioch, it sounds like it didn't go super well for him. So I want to double click into this church community here in Antioch because it was an amazing community. 
the background on how this church was founded is, is found in the book of Acts, and it highlights how severe persecution, ironically by Paul and others, scattered believers out of Jerusalem towards Cyprus and Syria and Turkey. And these Jesus followers brought with them the gospel message, and they shared it with both Jews, but also non-Jews or Gentiles. And Antioch here was referred to all city in one place. This was a unique city. It was significant in the Roman Empire. It was super urbanized. There was about 500,000 people here. By comparison, Rome had about a million. And it was densely populated. It was religiously pluralistic, people coming from all kinds of faith backgrounds. It was a melting pot of culture as well, Greek, Oriental, a place of trade. This was a military headquarters for Rome. The city was culturally diverse. There were a multitude of languages. And these were spiritual people coming from a variety of, of cults. There were, there were Jews living here, and they were open to spiritual things. And in Rome's effort to keep peace in a city with such diversity, they built literal, literal walls between different groups. The Jews had their neighborhood, the Greeks had theirs, Romans had theirs. These were physical and symbolic of the massive divides in the city. And it's this soil that we find the gospel beginning to spring and sprout forth and gain momentum. The book of Acts describes how this church was flourishing, but how is that possible in such an environment that we just learned about? See, the power of the gospel offered hope and transformation. The city was not an easy place to live. People were in close proximity. Suffering and sin was right in front of your face because of that, and there was a deep need for hope. The gospel offered this immediate hope in Jesus. This church also thrived as its community broke down cultural and ethnic walls and mirrored the diversity of the city. The leaders of the church were Jewish, African, Greek, had Roman connections. This church community lived into and celebrated their diversity. So in this place where Roman leaders built walls of separation to keep peace uh, because of these different senses of cultural superiority, the gospel brought reconciliation and upset society's attempts to categorize and separate people. And it was here that the family of God was actually first referred to as Christians. The term Christian was coined as, it, as the gospel tore down walls between cultures and race and heritage as a new family was created. Society didn't know what to call these people. And that term Christian uh, was this group of people coming together under the cross from all different backgrounds, meaning those of Jesus' party. So it's here in Antioch that we find people coming together from all different walks of life, from different cultures and ethnicities, to form a new family rooted in the reconciliation of Jesus. And this leads us into our opposition from our author Paul. This is a a public confrontation that we just read about. And why this strong language of Peter being condemned? Remember, leading up to this, there was a heated debate around continuing these Jewish customs. And long story short, Paul gave some advice on how to get along with other believers when they were disagreeing about issues that weren't central to the faith. Basically said that if Jews felt compelled in their conscience to continue these practices, they could, but Gentiles didn't have to. His heart here was to squash uh, a sense of superiority on both sides and strive for equality and unity in the church. And he gets at this because he believes all believers have an equal place of grace before Jesus. 
And then Peter's actions here begin to dissolve this cross-ethnic and cross-cultural gospel that was breaking down walls in Antioch because he was wrong in the eyes of God. Paul's like, dude, you are messing up this great church. So right off the bat, we read here that this is a staunch reminder that all of humanity comes to Jesus on an equal playing field. The gospel is for all people, all ethnicities, all cultures, etc., etc. And racism and prejudice are really an affront to Jesus. Let's go on to verse 12. Again, it says, For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. So we read further here about why Peter stood condemned. And remember who we're talking about. This is Peter. He walked with Jesus in the flesh for years. Jesus said that he would found his church upon Peter as well. But yet he falls short. And he's faced with confrontation. And just reading about confrontation is a little bit tough for me. I'm an Enneagram 9, meaning that I'm the peacemaker. I typically opt for like other outcomes than confrontation. But that's what we're reading about. And Paul acts in love, really as a coach here. This isn't unhinged anger. He sees something in Peter that perhaps Peter doesn't see in himself. And see, I think there's both a level of internal and external confrontation. Internal confrontation being when we see in ourselves some level of disjointedness, something out of whack, maybe with our moral compass or our conscience, or we have a check in how our values aren't matching up with our behavior. We feel a healthy internal confrontation when we're out of alignment. But as far as we know, Peter was not internally confronted here. He was okay with his behavior. So this confrontation is external. Someone needed to say something to him. And I've been married uh, now for just over five years. And I'd like to say that I'm just such an amazing man that I always catch myself with internal confrontation when I make mistakes or act a little selfishly. But I don't. And there's moments where I get the look. You know, the look. Or the, hey, can we talk about something? Or maybe when more emotional conversations tend to pop up. Because I know that behind that look or behind those words, there's something that I'm doing or not doing or some pain that I've caused. And it's never fun, but there's something so helpful and healthy about the right kind of confrontation. It brings perspective. Confrontation helps you to see growth potential or a wider perspective than before. And for Peter, this confrontation is calling out his prejudice. Um, talk a little bit about prejudice, Dr. Gordon Alford out of Harvard, he's spent his entire life's work studying prejudice. And in his book, The Nature of Prejudice, he describes five levels to this phenomenon. And they kind of move sequentially from one level to the next. And it begins with talking. Think about speaking negatively about someone else's race or ethnicity with someone from your own race or ethnicity. That's, That's prejudice. Secondly is avoidance. Think about disassociating with another race or ethnicity. This was Peter's guilt. He wasn't comfortable being around the Gentiles when the Jews were around. Third is discrimination, maybe a a difference in pay when the same work is being accomplished. Think about harm and violence. These are things we've seen in America in recent months. 
in the top level is extermination. This is, this is Hitler. This is external cleansing. So in Paul's confrontation, Peter might have a preference here to eat with the Jews. But this simply doesn't align with living into kingdom values. And it's when our preferences are somehow no longer aligned with the behaviors and the teachings of Jesus when they're simply wrong. See, what I'm getting at here is that the gospel confronts our prejudice, our pride, our superiorities, because again, we come as equals before the cross of Christ. There's no other notion or standard or law that provides this deep level of internal reconciliation that's needed here. And we as the family of God must be people that confront prejudice in our own lives, but also in the world around us. And judgment and shame and guilt are not the goal, but again, it's healing and peace and reconciliation. So let's read about this further in verse 13. Again, it says, The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. What is this hypocrisy? This is a word that's uh, used twice here. See, Peter was distancing himself from the Gentiles while the gospel had radically rebuilt the family of God across cultures and race and backgrounds here in Antioch. So see, at the core, we have a new family that we find ourselves part of when we begin following Jesus. This is described in Revelation 7 as John is describing heaven. He says, and, and after this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, every tribe, every people and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. This is the picture of God's family, your family as you come to follow him. A picture of what heaven will look like one day in the times to come. And Peter was missing out on this key detail. See, in Jerusalem, he'd been ministering to a culture that was monocultural, being vastly Jewish. But then in Antioch, the ethnic and the cultural expressions were diverse. And he had great influence in the church, which is why this is so important to Paul. He's causing other key leaders like Barnabas to follow along. And I think that, that Peter's hypocrisy stems from missing out again on one key biblical detail. This is a handhold for us. The idea of the Imago Dei, or humanity being created in the image of God. You see, foundational to the Christian perspective, I'm going to pause just for one second because this is so important. Now we're back. You see, foundational to the Christian perspective on reality is that humanity was created in God's image. That we are bearers of God, His image, our Creator. And if you were living in Bible times, you'd actually likely be living under a king. Many kings thought of themselves as gods, described themselves as living in the image of God, meaning they could command other people to do their bidding. They could define good and evil. They created statues of themselves. Except for the people of Israel, they didn't equate their, their kings with God. They didn't build images of God because they believed God had already made images of himself in us. And in the biblical framework, everything begins with God. He alone is king. He speaks things into creation out of nothing. And at the pinnacle of his creation, like Miss Carrie read about early, earlier, he creates humanity, which he calls the image of God. And he tells humans to subdue the earth and rule it. This used to be a task reserved for kings. 
But in the Bible, it's a task for humanity to partner with God in the human project. Taking the world forward in human flourishing becomes our sacred task. So the image of God gives us purpose, but it also gives us distinct value and identity. See, being created in God's image means that we have a special and unique place within the entire design, equating in our identity and our self-worth. God's the author of our essence. We didn't come into being by accident or appear without purpose, which means we have deep, set-apart, intrinsic value. God's image is on you. You are valuable. You were created with the utmost worth. Maybe that's all you needed to hear tonight. And it's on every person, though, now that you look at as well. See, in his hypocrisy, Peter neglects this foundational truth, as done with any action of racial prejudice or superiority. And here, though, I think in lies the great opportunity for the people of God to bring healing and reconciliation. Because when we all experience the radical grace of Jesus, this now becomes the deepest layer of our identity. And Peter was missing it. And I don't want to focus so much so on the hypocrisy of Peter that that we miss out on what I think is the great opportunity for the church. See, this gives us an incredible message of hope to bring the world. Because Because we believe this great truth, we should first see our identities in Christ, but then extend this view of human value, seeing others as God sees them too. And when you begin to see people through this lens, you see worth and value across all spectrums. And I think this is a message the world needs to hear right now. See, this is something for us to cling to in times of chaos. Again, a handhold when other areas of our worth and our value seem to be slipping away right now. Let's finish in verse 14. It says, When I saw they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile, and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? That phrase, the truth of the gospel, is is where I want to focus in and sort of end tonight. Because when we think about that idea of the gospel, I think we typically zoom in on our personal salvation, that Jesus lived and died and rose again to restore our relationship with God, and that through faith and nothing of our own effort, this brings eternity in heaven which is completely true and totally life-changing. But the good news of the gospel is larger, deeper, wider than just me. It's holistic in that God is actively redeeming the entire world and all of his creation. He's undoing the effects of sin on everything as he brings heaven here. I love this line from uh, author, pastor Eugene Cho. He said that, Social justice is not the totality of the gospel, but the gospel without a commitment to the neighbor, the vulnerable, and the common good is not a faithful gospel. That the gospel not only saves, but also pursues the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And see, as this kingdom comes, this Lord, our God, will return in justice, unseating every system and practice and person pushing injustice in our world. So the gospel is our message, and the gospel will bring with it justice. Another great quote from Timothy Keller. He recently wrote that God intends his people to be integrally involved as a collective in civic space, repairing, rebuilding, 
and restoring structures and systems so that all people may flourish. The, ch the church exists as an institution for greater social good, and we need to recapture ecclesial responsibility for systemic justice and meaningful change. And while justice is such a buzzword right now, I think we actually need a biblical understanding of what justice is so that we can engage the world as Christ would. See, while the world is looking for retribution, God is yearning for justice. What is biblical justice? The Bible has a great answer to that. It actually starts on page one, once again, as humans are set apart in all of creation as having the image of God. This means that all humans are equal before God, which is the bedrock of biblical justice. This means that we all have the right to be treated with dignity and fairness, regardless of who we are, what we think, what we look like. But I think that we can quickly look around and agree as we look at the world. This would be great if it was actually happening. It hasn't been happening for our black African-American uh, brothers and sisters lately. See, but in the Bible, we read about humanity then goes on to constantly redefine good and evil for their own advantage at the expense of others. It becomes this self-preservation effort, taking advantage of those who are more weak, more vulnerable. And in the Bible, we see this happening in individuals, in entire families, in entire communities, and above that into systems and civilizations that exploit the vulnerable. But out of this mess, God chooses Abraham to start a new kind of family meant to live righteously and with justice. And righteousness here doesn't mean to be a good person. It's actually an ethical standard focusing on right relationships between people and with God or treating others as the image of God with the dignity that they deserve. And then justice. Uh, this can refer to retributive justice or right punishment. But actually, in most cases in Scripture, justice refers to restorative justice, going a step further in action, seeking out those who are vulnerable, those who are being taken advantage of, and helping them out. And it's not simple charity, but it's taking steps in advocacy for the vulnerable, looking to change systems that prevent injustice moving forward. So doing justice becomes a radical and a selfless way of life. And we read about this throughout the scriptures. In Proverbs 31, it says, Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. The prophet Jeremiah says, This is what the Lord says. Do what is just and right. Rescue from the hand of the oppressor the one who has been robbed. Do no wrong or violence to the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow. Do not shed innocent blood in their place. Psalm 146 says, He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoner free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. That word wicked refers to those that forego seeing others with the dignity that comes from being created in the image of God. So what I'm getting at here is that we read throughout the scriptures that justice is a big deal to God. So much so that he rescued his own people, the Israelites, out of slavery, out of injustice. But then tragically, as we read through the, the grand narrative of the Bible, these Israelites go on to be unjust themselves, taking advantage of the vulnerable. 
And likewise, in our world, we see systems of injustice. We see people who are actively pushing them. We see people receiving benefits from these systems. And sometimes we see the oppressed go on to become oppressors themselves, like the people of Israel. And because we live in a world of sin, sometimes we can even participate in this, even if it's just passive or unintentional. But the beauty of the biblical story is that God pursues an unjust humanity, giving us life in Jesus as he died on the cross. He who lived perfectly just, serving humanity, yet died on behalf of the unjust and the guilty. So I think as we look at Christians and Christians in Antioch, they took these ideas really seriously. They began to act in, in new and surprising ways. This led them to become participants of justice and reconciliation across all spectrums. And this is what made Paul so upset with Peter. See, the people in Antioch actively took on the problems of other people, advocated for them, invited them into the family. And this may have looked entirely crazy at the time in that city, but they began to extend God-given dignity to others, leading to a culture of justice and reconciliation. As we look back at our church heritage, I feel like this is another handhold for us. As we come to a close, I realize that was pretty high level. These were broad strokes across scripture, but I think they form for us a baseline for being active participants with Jesus in justice and reconciliation. And that said, you might be asking yourself, whoa, where do I start? <laughs> and I do believe we need to start practically with this. And I think it can also feel a little bit overwhelming right now to even know how to proceed and to know where to start. So I've been praying um, this week through three questions myself. And I'd like to challenge all of us as we go into a new week to kind of pray through these same three questions because I believe they're important and they give us a starting point. Um, if you want to take notes, write these down, pull out your phone, feel free. But three questions that I, I just challenge us to pray through over the course of this week um, begin here. Do I need a healthy confrontation of the gospel message when it comes to racial reconciliation? Do I, like Peter, need to be confronted in some way? Are there areas in me in which the gospel needs to speak to? That was all the first question still, by the way, if you're taking notes. So the question was, do I need a healthy confrontation of the gospel message when it comes to racial reconciliation? Second question, if you're writing notes, and I think this is, this is important and practical, is how can I extend God-given dignity to others today? Again, how can I extend God-given dignity to others today? We all have different lives. We do different things with our days. We come across different people. We work different places. How can you extend God-given dignity to those that you come across starting tomorrow? And thirdly, how does God want me to approach this theme of justice in my life? Beyond that day-to-day -day extending God-given dignity to others, maybe God's calling you to something big here. 
Maybe there's a calling on your life to partner with him, an organization, something going on in our city. Again, how does God want me to approach this theme of justice that he cares so much about? So I'd encourage you to pray through those three questions this week. I'm going to continue to do the same. Uh, but as we come to a close, let's, let's pray together again. Heavenly Father, this is um, a big and a complex issue, and there's no way to talk through it and solve everything within just 30 minutes. But God, we do believe that your gospel equips us as your family to bring peace, to bring healing, to bring reconciliation, and that starts with us, Lord. We're grateful, God, that your gospel confronts us in ways that it needs to. But out of that, Lord, the gospel gives the greatest sense of hope that we can extend to everyone around us, Lord. Make us people who extend God-given dignity and value to people that so desperately need it right now. Help us to extend that hope. And Lord, show us, give us vision for where you're calling us to partner with you in something you care so much about, which is justice. God, we're grateful for your word. I'm grateful for so many people sitting around me that do this so very well. Give us a sense of, of grace and encouragement as we go on and extend your love in a brand new week. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.